Hello, you're listening to the Duke Law Podcast from the Duke University School of Law. I'm Kate Evans, Clinical Professor of Law and Director of the Duke Immigrant Rights Clinic. This episode has been selected from our regular schedule of guest speakers, panel discussions, and scholarly conferences. I hope you enjoy it. I would like to welcome you to the role of local elections in shaping immigration policy. An event sponsored by the Duke Immigrant and Refugee Project and Duke Law's Immigrant Rights Clinic. We have a great discussion lined up for you all today, and we would like to begin by thanking our co-sponsors, the Office of the Dean, the Office of Public Interest and Pro Bono, the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University, the Sanford School of Public Policy, the Latin American Students Association, the American Constitution Society, and Duke Law American Civil Liberties Union. These partners have supported us and helped spread the word about this event, and we are grateful to be able to work with them. Before I introduce our moderator and speakers, I would kindly request that event attendees ensure that they remain muted and that their cameras remain off for the entirety of the discussion. We do plan to have some time toward the end of the event for students to submit questions to speakers. If you would like to ask a question, please type it into Zoom's chat feature. Finally, I would remind everyone that this event is being recorded. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce our speakers and our moderator. Our first speaker, Stefania Arteaga, is the statewide immigrants' rights organizer at the ACLU of North Carolina. In this role, she works with Latinx advocates and ACLU supporters to lead campaigns to end 287G agreements and the use of ICE detainers in North Carolina. Stefania immigrated from El Salvador at the age of seven and has long felt compelled to advocate for immigrant rights. She spent years organizing undocumented students to campaign for education access, coordinating deportation defense campaigns, and successfully working to eliminate 287G in Mecklenburg County. Most recently, Stephania became a Z. Smith Reynolds Alpha NC Fellow. Stephania is also the co-founder of both Comunidad Colectiva, a grassroots immigrant rights organization in Mecklenburg County, and the Carolina Migrant Network, which provides free legal representation in immigration bond proceedings to individuals in North Carolina whom ICE has detained. Both Comunidad Colectiva and Stephania are featured on the Netflix series Immigration Nation, which aired on August 3rd, 2020. Our second speaker, Spencer Bloom, is a civic engagement organizer with El Pueblo, an advocacy and public policy nonprofit dedicated to helping Wake County's Latinx community achieve positive social change by building consciousness, capacity, and community action. In this role, Spencer supports volunteers and community members in relational organizing work and designs nonpartisan campaigns to help Latinx in North Carolina with information and direct action. For El Pueblo, Spencer works closely on many campaigns with a number of allies and partners, 
including many Latinx organizations. Spencer shares his time as an organizer with Fortaleza, a 501c4 organization that works to build political power for the Latinx community statewide. A Raleigh native and alumnus of UNC Wilmington, Spencer previously worked at the Dilly Pro Bono Project in Texas, which provides universal legal representation to detained families. Spencer managed the project's day-to-day -day logistics, often serving as a point of contact for clients, DHS personnel, and media alike. Finally, our moderator today is Professor Gunther Peck. Gunther holds a joint appointment in the History Department and the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University, where he teaches courses on North American immigration and environmental history, as well as seminars on the history of human trafficking, past and present. In his first book, Reinventing Free Labor, Padrones and Immigrant Workers in the North American West, 1885 to 1930, Gunther explored how and why immigrant workers in the West lost their ability to quit and to move during the half century after the end of Reconstruction. One of the first scholars to historicize the origins of modern slavery, Gunther has recently completed a second book which explores the complex relationship between human trafficking and white supremacy and the twined historical resistance to both. Entitled Race Traffic, Radical Anti-Slavery and the Long Resistance to White Supremacy, 1660 to 1860. The book is forthcoming from the Omohundro Institute with the University of North Carolina Press. Gunther is also the director of the Hart Leadership Program at the Sanford School, where he teaches leadership classes and a new project-based class called the Democracy Lab. As part of that project, the Hart Leadership Program is supporting the Carolina Campus Voting Challenge a competition involving eight North Carolina schools, including UNC Chapel Hill and Duke, to expand student voter registration and voting in the upcoming election. His students are working on a variety of access issues, including efforts to redress language barriers to voting, as well as creating better public transportation access to the ballot during the pandemic. Thank you once again to our speakers and to our moderator for joining us today. It's my pleasure now to turn things over to Gunther to begin our discussion. Thank you, Connor. <clears throat> thank you for that introduction. And also thank you to Kate Evans, the director of the um, Immigration Law Clinic for helping um, reach out to me and to foster this conversation, which brings together law students and I can see some of my undergrads in the, um, uh, here with us. And that is a terrific opportunity for both. So just real quickly, I'm going to, I love the topic here and I want to frame a point of departure for um, our two speakers. I think uh, the question of how uh, local elections have shaped immigration policy is often overlooked for obvious reasons because national immigration policy is um, often rightly thought of as a function of sovereignty. It's something that the various branches of government think they control, whether it's judicial, congressional, or the executive branch. Often overlooked are the local actors who implement or resist those policies, as well as the local actors who 
in many respects, determine how or even whether immigration policy gets enacted. And so I think at this moment especially, it's exciting to think and reflect on um, how local initiatives are really charting uh, almost two different types of reform. Uh, we wouldn't call it immigration reform, but it is a form of reform already about what we as residents allow in our neighborhoods when it comes to uh, the draconian enforcement, the inhumane enforcement of law, as well as even imagining what alternatives we, we might create from the bottom up that would be genuine immigration reform. Um, as I look at it, I would say that the, the, the coalitions uh, that do that work are really the ones that need to be more looked at, considered, learned from. And we have both of our speakers can speak to that experiential learning uh, and knowledge that they have um, acquired through hard work and struggle. So um, that local elections matter to me is a given. Um, witness the role of local sheriffs in creating sanctuary cities and finding ways of pushing back against 287G, but they're not in isolation. They're working obviously with coalitions of citizens and residents. Um, I think one thing I wanna just raise as we begin to is to say that there is, and I can't help but say this, as, a, as an historian, I'm not gonna take you back to the 17th century, don't worry, but I do think that if we think of the longer history of migration policy in this country, um, if we go back to the 1850s, the Fugitive Slave Act, which made it legal for slave owners to find and to capture, kidnap, traffic, almost anyone who was African-American without any due process rights. And then the fight against that by local authorities. This is an old story in which, in many respects, politics has, has been fought and uh, larger constitutional questions have been adjudicated by local actors at the local level. Not simply in terms of jurisprudence, but in terms of um, really literally pitch battles on the ground. And I think it opens, if we think of that as a starting point, or well, one starting point, to the current struggle over the enforcement of immigration law, I think that we can see a longer history of how local actors have really been innovators in changing and, uh, and stopping what are really fundamentally inhumane law. And I would also say that for me, local does not mean localistic. They can be global in the way they think, but it's really a site of conflict. And so I'm curious as to how uh, a kind of global and broader humanitarian energy can illuminate and really transform what seems to be merely local, because it's never really just a local struggle. It's part of a bigger, a bigger contest. So um, I will save my own reflections on the role of Spanish language barriers to the vote today. Another way to think of this topic also is to turn it around the role of uh, immigration policies in shaping local elections, not just local elections in shaping policy. They're, they're intimately connected, in fact, in practice. Um, witness no further that we have an English-only ballot in this state, and most Spanish-speaking citizens receive instructions for voting absentee by mail in English-only, 
even if they ask for ballots in Spanish. So there is a lot of work to be done, a lot of work that coalitions can help lead with. So without saying any more, I'm gonna turn it over to our terrific speakers and um, look forward to the questions. We'll start with Stefania um, and take it away. You're muted. I am muted, I am sorry about that. Um, well, again, thank you so much for having me. My name is Stefania Artiaga. I work for the ACLU of North Carolina. I'm their immigrant rights organizer. And my main focus is on the role of the sheriff. Um, so just to give you some historical background and, and kind of the work that I've done, um, I, I live in Charlotte. I have I've grown, up, grown up in Mecklenburg County most of my life. Um, and something that's significant about that it, is that I lived in the east side of Charlotte. And the east side of Charlotte is uh, predominantly Latino and, um, and black and brown. And as it comes, you know, with that demographics, it's a community that's overly policed, um, not only by local law enforcement, but by also by immigration and customs enforcement. And so, you know, the story of Mecklenburg County also dictates the story of immigration enforcement as a whole in the state of North Carolina. So in 2000 and around 2005, um, the sheriff of Mecklenburg County, um, Sheriff Pendergraf, actually traveled to uh, Maricopa County um, in Phoenix um, to visit um, Joe Arpaio to learn more about the um, Joe Arpaio's immigration machine that he had created through a collaboration, a voluntary collaboration with um, Immigration Customs Enforcement. Uh, by entering into this agreement called the 287G agreement that would deputize um, a select number of sheriff's deputies to enact, to have, to have basically the power of, of ICE agents. Um, and there was two ways that it could be done. There was um, the jail force model in, which, in where operations happened within the jail. So somebody came in, they were screened, and it was determined if they would be placed in removal proceedings or not or through the task force model, which was on the ground, actively out in the community doing enforcement. Um, and so Pendergraf goes to Maricopa County and he comes back to Mecklenburg County and he goes to his county board or our county commissioners and says, hey guys, here's this great program <laughs> I came across out in Phoenix. And I definitely think this is something that we need to bring back to North Carolina. And so North Carolina, I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with sheriffs and sheriff's power and, and, and sheriff's budgets, but in North Carolina, your county commissioners are the ones that determine your, your, your sheriff's budgets, what they're going to, you know, how, what they're asking for, um, where they're going to increase their budgets here or there. And so what ended up happening is the county commissioners of Mecklenburg County um, allocated a very large quantity to provide the materials and the resources and the training necessary um, for about eight sheriffs to go through a, a training through with ICE and, and have that authority and, and turn to this 287G agreement. And so this relationship that this uh, contractual agreement that happened in Mecklenburg County ended up um, spreading throughout this, the rest of the state. Um, and that's where we see Gaston County uh, Cabarrus County, Durham, um, city of Durham, um, and Wake County. And there's also, I always forget where, um, starts at the B, it's out in Eastern North Carolina. I always forget the name, but it resulted in various counties that, that ended up entering to a contractual agreement, a voluntary contractual agreement with ICE um, to, 
be part of immigration enforcement. And so, you know, I uh, very much growing up, growing in this community, I was it was very common in East Charlotte that on Saturday and Sunday mornings, you would see sheriffs um, doing check, uh, checkpoints outside of soccer fields or near churches because they knew that community members after, I think it was like after 06 or 07, no longer had driver's licenses and that it was a quick way to get people and process them for deportation. Um, and so very early on, you know, this is something I would consistently grew up with. Um, and in Charlotte, we had a group of community members called Familias Unidas that came around in 2010 that were directly impacted people. Um, these were parents um, that had been uh, placed in removal proceedings um, for something as little as uh, racial profiling. One of the guys was a painter, um, was driving through a neighborhood because he was lost in South Charlotte, which is very affluent. Police was called on him. He didn't have a license. He was, uh, he was put in removal proceedings. And so a lot of these people were organizing to try to fight their cases and, and fight it, have a chance to stay um, with their family. Um, and, you know, I was, I was in that community. That was my community. These are people that I grew up with. And so fast forward, because I'm kind of, I don't remember how much time I have left. Fast forward, um, you know, 2016, I want to say, when the presidential election is, is happening. Um, at this point, I was not working with the ACLU. Um, I was just your average hometown organizer. Um, and I was organizing with a youth, well, hope it just youth that I grew up with. Um, and we were focusing at that time was under the Obama administration, the um, Operation Border Guardian, which is an operation that was focused um, a lot in North Carolina that was targeting unaccompanied minors, so children that came to the U.S. on their own and were targeting um, in some, targeting them in sensitive locations in route, in route to schools or in actual bus stops or around the schools. And so we already had an energized group that was fighting to prevent the deportations of folks, but we were really concerned as to what we could actually do moving forward, knowing that we had a president or, you know, soon to be president that was very vocal about his anti-immigrant rhetoric and knowing that we may not have a lot of power in the federal level to do a lot of change, but we had a lot of power in the local level with our county commissioners and the way that they oversaw the sheriff's budget and um, a sheriff election that was going on. And so we made sure that we educated voters on the power of the county commissioners to look into intergovernmental service agreements, um, you know, contracts with the U.S. Marshals, um, contracts with ICE, contracts with other federal agencies that ultimately ended up militarizing, let's say, um, our sheriff's department. And then we had the sheriff's department who was very, very adamant about um, just, you know, I am a sheriff and I am here to protect y'all against these illegals. That, that was very much his rhetoric. Um, and so Mecklenburg County is a very blue county and nobody thought that they would have a blue sheriff in support of the president's narrative. Um, mind you, this was a C4 campaign, so we could say so we could talk about parties. Um, and so we you know, directly focused this campaign on targeting the sheriff um, initially to change his stance on, the, on ending the county's 12 year old um, program that resulted in over 15,000 deportations. Sorry, people that were placed in removal proceedings. We weren't able to track them all. And so that resulted into a C4 campaign in, in turn to educate voters on where the other two candidates stood, 
not only on their stance about 287G, but in-person visitations. That was not a thing that was allowed under the, the incumbent. And um, during that time, raise the age hadn't gone through. And so we had a 16 and 17 year olds that were being placed in solitary confinement at higher rates in Mecklenburg County than across the state. And so we were also post the Charlotte uprising, which was a big event that it was, you know, CMPD murdered Keith Lamont Scott, which resulted in an uprising and a lot of black and brown community building um, that really started to change the political spectrum as well. And we were tied into that. Um, that started with the year prior with the change of our complete change of our city council to then us taking the baton and or the baton, whatever it's called, <laughs> and focusing on the role of uh, the county commissioners and the sheriff. And so the way Netflix actually found us, um, and I did, we didn't know about this until actually like about three months ago, um, was that ICE was had an eye on us. So the ICE field office in Charlotte was actually, and we knew this at the time that they were working with the incumbent to promote his election, um, but we didn't know that they were watching it so closely um, that they were even monitoring us. And so, you know, we were, unlike the other campaigns that happened across the state, our campaign was a primary. Um, we had a very successful campaign and where about, I want to say about 40% of the vote, it was a three-person race. Um, no, I think it was 60% of the vote went to the now sheriff, Sheriff McFadden. The incumbent only received 20% of the vote. And then the third candidate also received about 20% of the vote. Um, and what to add an extra degree of just like bizarreness, it was also one of the most expensive sheriff's races. Um, cumulatively, uh, there's about almost $200,000 raised among the three sheriffs. And then we also decided to kind of take a step back and look at who was investing in these campaigns, particularly in the incumbent side. And of course, it was very law enforcement heavy, very vendor heavy. Um, and so, um, yeah, you know, and then I, I transitioned into a role of, in a supportive role through a, um, a working group to support the incumbent uh, or the soon to be sheriff to change his policies in Mecklenburg County. And so just going back and reiterating really the importance of, of the, the election, you know, we knew it was attainable to us because we knew who was making the decisions for us. Um, and we also knew that, you know, the, the power of the sheriff is, is large in North Carolina, really. I mean, they have a lot of, they're, they're like a constitutional body. Um, and not, just not, you know, making sure we didn't silo issues and looked at the body as a whole that, was not only affecting the immigrant community, but also affecting um, poor uh, black and brown people in our community. Um, so that's really the strategy that we focused on. And just to give a statewide perspective, so we were the first ones to have to focus on a sheriff election in this scale through a C4 model in the state, um, particularly focused on an immigrant rights issue. Um, and this, we started around 2017 and really focus the best, the most of our our energy in 2018. Um, and, you know, I gave you the number, right? Collectively, they spend about almost $200,000. The incumbent himself, he raised about a hundred and something and change. And we ran a campaign with under $2,000, which mostly was composed of yard signs because it's all we could afford. Um, and, you know, after that, um, Wake County followed. Dur uh, Durham County followed. Um, 
And then shortly after that, we had Forsyth, Guilford, and Buncombe, and where there was also community pressure to make sure that their sheriffs wouldn't collaborate with ICE. And if you look at it in like people's perspective, that almost accounts for a third of the North Carolina population. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's just a little bit of story of kind of the work that we did in Mecklenburg County. It's an incredible story. Uh, thank you, Stefania. Let's want to. We have questions coming, but let's uh, before we go any further, let's uh, let's bring in Spencer to hear, learn from his extraordinary work as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Peck, and thanks very much for for having me today. Um, it's a real pleasure to follow uh, Stefania and to work with people like her in organizations like Comunidad Colectiva. Um, the ACLU and a lot of other groups to do this organizing in North Carolina. Uh, just to introduce myself, my name is Spencer Bloom. I'm here today um, in, in my role as an organizer with El Pueblo, a Raleigh-based uh, Latinx-led nonprofit that's been around for 25 years in North Carolina. Um, I also share my time as an organizer with uh, a related 501c4 organization called Fortaleza, uh, which, like Stefania was mentioning, kind of allows us to organize um, and run campaigns, both kind of on an informational, nonpartisan side with El Pueblo, and then a more um, uh, political, a more directly political kind of side with Fortaleza. Um, so, you know, I am uniquely privileged to be here to kind of talk about this today, uh, largely because, you know, I, I have no background in this type of grassroots organizing. In fact, the background that I uh, came to El Pueblo with after my experience um, uh, working with detained families on, uh, close to the Southern border uh, was actually in progressive democratic politics here in North Carolina. And I just, you know, as Stephanie was pointing out and really kind of needs to be uh, made clear, um, immigrant rights have not uh, found a home, the uh, protection of immigrant families and uh, the, the interests of immigrant families in North Carolina have not found a home in either political party. This is not something that um, has been championed universally by either party. And of course, we've seen really direct attacks coming from, um, you know, people aligned with the GOP, like in more recent years. But just as Stephanie was talking about, like every person that she mentioned in Mecklenburg County uh, was a Democrat. Um, uh, Pen, uh, Jim Pendergraf was a, he, he did change his affiliation to be a Republican later on, but he was a, a Democrat sheriff who adopted 287G in Mecklenburg. Um, Gary McFadden, you know, we're, we're, you know, all of that organizing work that was so essential around, um, around these sheriffs, like in, in the five or six counties that Stephanie mentioned, um, you know, all of that, uh, especially in Mecklenburg County, like that was a Democratic primary. I mean, Erwin uh, Carmichael, the incumbent, was a Democrat as well. So, I think that um, sheriffs, and I'm going to transition and talk about the General Assembly and talk about legislative races in North Carolina, but sheriffs um, are, for some reason, um, incredibly powerful and also elected offices that we kind of leave in this really antiquated view of, of their role um, in, in, on a community level as well as a political level. I mean, if they're, uh, they're people that are controlling huge budgets, that are controlling huge parts of people's lives, in all 100 counties in North Carolina. And yet in many counties, you'll find, um, you know, what we talk about is blue dog Democrats or, or there are other terms for them, right? But folks who, you know, despite their political party were eager to kind of participate in anti-immigrant 
programs like 287G, um, uh, Warrant Service Officer Program. Uh, in fact, right now, the, I think the sheriff in Duplin County is a Democrat who's signed up to, to participate in that. Um, so, you know, my point is just that the organizing that has gone on for decades, um, that's been led by, um, like, like Stephanie was talking about, people directly impacted in Charlotte, in uh, uh, Siler City, in communities all across North Carolina, um, was, was there without really much of a, with, with not a lot of power lent to them, not a lot of advocates, lent, uh, allies lent to them. Um, El Pueblo is an organization, like I mentioned, that's been around for 25 years. Um, that is one of these groups that's been doing a lot of organizing uh, on issues like um, getting <laughs> driver's licenses reinstored for um, undocumented uh, folks in North Carolina. That's something that was around in the early 90s up until about 2005, when again, a Democratic governor, Mike Easley, uh, signed a bill that, that changed that, uh, that changed that reality for um, undocumented families and immigrants in North Carolina. So after 2010, you know, we see a sweep of the General Assembly. We see uh, a trifecta control of the governor's mansion, the House, and the Senate in North Carolina by, uh, by Republicans for the first time since Reconstruction. And um, that kind of, you know, led to a whole number of political issues. We, of course, redistricting is kind of the thing that North Carolina makes headlines for a lot. But immigration enforcement is something that has been there um, almost as kind of a pet project of some legislators in the General Assembly uh, that's led to sweeping attempts to um, come directly at the immigrant community in North Carolina and specifically talking about House Bill 370, uh, which was kind of leads perfectly after Stephanie's uh, great detailed discussion of all of the sheriff races um, uh, in 2018. Um, House Bill 370, uh, which was vetoed by Governor Cooper last year, uh, would have kind of superseded sheriff's control over uh, making making that decision over the over cooperation with ICE and forced all 100 counties to kind of opt in and and, and cooperate with ICE. Um, so this is something that in which Republicans also realized people at the General Assembly level also realized the importance of the the sheriff position and saw what happens uh, when organizers are able to kind of achieve victories uh, at the local level. Um, in response, we saw House Bill 370, which required a veto by the governor uh, to not. Otherwise, that's something that we'd be dealing with right now in North Carolina. Um, and again, that, that was something that was introduced by, um, by Republicans, a number of whom are kind of uh, really powerful leaders within the party. You know, not, not kind of backbenchers, but folks who are involved in planning for re-election campaigns in 2020, people who have leadership in the, in the General Assembly as well as some Democrats in rural counties or in just a number of counties that, um, for whom this was not an issue that was at the front and center for them, in which all of the organizing had not yet reached them. So um, again, through grassroots organizing, through a, a large collaborative effort, a formal coalition was introduced, the House Bill 370 Coalition, of which El Pueblo was a member, uh, the ECLU was a member, uh, of course, many, many other groups across North Carolina, uh, specifically um, uh, Grupos de Base or, or uh, kind of grassroots organizing, like Latinx-led organizing groups were leading a lot of these efforts and really setting the narrative for larger groups, um, many of whom were not Latinx-led or, or, or Black organizations, but um, really created this kind of intersectional umbrella 
um, of a coalition that really clearly advocated against House Bill 370 um, that led, that pushed Governor Cooper to veto it. Um, and that was kind of like the most recent and largest example of the effect of um, people in the North Carolina House specifically, right, who a lot of who their elections are decided by uh, hundreds or, you know, less than, less than a few thousand votes, um, legislating on national issues that affect local communities. It, it's kind of just a, a multi-headed beast of a, of a concept, you know, of a problem here in North Carolina. Um, and like, the, I hope that that provides some context for, um, you know, how these local, how these national issues uh, at the local level are, have also gotten into the hands and in the attention of like our organized, well-funded and powerful uh, political leadership in the state. Um, am I, and Dr. Peck, am I good on time? I'm sorry, I have just a couple more. Yeah, another minute. Yeah, and then we can. The last thing I just want to point out in terms of North Carolina this year is that um, North Carolina is unique. We have elections at every single level of the ballot. Um, and all the way, you know, of course, from president and VP down to soil and water conservation district supervisor. That's not true in every other state. We have competitive races in the General Assembly. Um, and what happens in January 13th, I think, when the legislature goes back into session is going, or what happens leading up to that is going to be um, determined a lot by what happens with about six uh, seats in the House that Democrats need to flip uh, in order to kind of take that. Um, there's, you know, at least a dozen competitive seats in the House um, uh, that are going to be really important for uh, for Democrats to, for, you know, both parties to kind of look at. And um, El Pueblo, Fortaleza, and a lot of other groups in the state are um, actively reaching out to Latinx voters and activating our networks to uh, make sure that people are registered, make sure people have the information they need, and um, know when and you know how they can vote safely this year. Because of course we're experiencing all of this through the lens of a pandemic, um, which is why I think we're on Zoom today. But so that would you know a, a lot of kind of context about the election and what's at stake this year. Um, and it's not just the, it's not just sheriffs, you know, who are not up for office this year. It's about people in Raleigh uh, and all the way up to the governor's mansion as well. Thank you so much. There's so much insight and depth of knowledge here we can reflect on and share. I, I have a question for, before we get to the, con the current election, because I think there's a lot more fact on there. I have a, do have a question for both of you. Um, and I think it's really about coalition politics or coalitions, if you could reflect on when they work, because I think as I often think of coalitions as being, we praise them when a bigger collective good is achieved, but so often they don't necessarily work. And there are moments where people feel, uh, you know, abused by coalition, like you support me, but it's not mutual. And what I find striking about both of your stories, among many things, is that the coalitions worked here for a group of non-citizens and so, um, and their rights. And I think part of it, it's embedded in the way in which citizenship rights are actually part of this story as well. If you can be incarcerated unfairly, that's bad for everybody. But I'm wondering what your reflections are on how the, what made these coalitions successful. If you want to reflect on that. Coalition work is hard regardless. <laughs> I think, I mean, it, maybe that's even an understatement, but um, I think 
two things, right? So I was also part of the HB 370 coalition. We also had a, a coalition in, in Mecklenburg County that, um, you know, was very diverse across the board. We had Southeast Asian groups. We had um, the the Women's March movement. Um, we had um, Action and C. We had a very different, you know, very diverse and very different points. I think um, the phrase that I want to use, I cannot use. <laughs> but with, when things hit the fan, I mean, I think it's all hands on deck, right? Um, and I think that's very much the perspective, at least in Mecklenburg County. Um, and I would also dare say with HB 370 Coalition that we operated with is that there are absolutely necessary, tangible things that need to get done. Um, and, you know, kumbaya and emotions are important, but there's a longer vision at, at, at you know, ahead. And I think that's very much how we operated in Mecklenburg. We were very strategic and very upfront with the way that, with the reality that was <laughs> in front of us. Um, you know, I think coalitions aren't forever either, right? Like the HB 370 coalition is an example of, um, of that. You know, the, the bill was, we were able to get the bill vetoed. We were able to organize across the state and we're currently dormant, right? There's more important things that at, at bay, which is the pandemic, the, the language access that is needed for communities to understand that the way that Latinx folks are experiencing COVID at higher or, or getting COVID at higher rates. Um, I think there's a difference of when is a coalition needed and then when is a coalition not needed. However, there's, you know, there is an importance to be in community among ourselves. Um, and we may not love each other as much as we love another organization, but as long as we're in community and in constant communication, um, I think that's what's helpful. Um, so that's just my take. Yeah, really helpful. Um, Spencer, did you have a quick, quick thought about what makes coalitions work when and why? <laughs> Certainly. Um, Stephanie is so right that coalition, like the example of House Bill 370 right now and the fact that we are dormant, that we're not having those meetings, um, just to provide like some context, you know, I see a lot of those organizations and those partners in coalition calls around mutual aid right now and the response to the pandemic. So that's just kind of been, um, you know, one of the things about those relationships is that they're long lasting and that these coalitions are going to reform and kind of um, take new shape uh, as different issues come up, as more important things kind of uh, are, are pressing us. Um, one thing that really can't be overlooked about um, 370 specifically, and I think it's a good example, is that in North Carolina, we have uh, a, a history, and Dr. Peck, you could talk about this in detail, about of um, Black uh, law enforcement and locally elected Black officials uh, dating all the way back to fusionism. Um, and we also have a, a deep uh, history of immigration and migration here in North Carolina, um, building these communities, you know, often in some of the places where uh, local black power has been and political power has kind of been downtrodden and stamped on for, for decades. So I think that these kind of things are coming together and merging around, um, around an issue like 287G um, combined with kind of the, the resources that are, that are left Leveraged uh, from groups like ACLU, from from um, elected Democrats, from from people who are not from these circles but do have resources that they can leverage. Um, I think that you know, kind of all of that coming together was um, uh, not inevitable. Like it was, it was very intentional and very purposeful. But those um, those communities are there, and I think that 
intersectionality between the two and just working together on joint priorities are going to, it's going to be kind of a key and something we're going to see time and time again, um, because these things are not separate, especially as we're seeing the way that, like, like Stephanie mentioned that, um, you know, black people in North Carolina and Latinx communities are, are being so hard hit by COVID. It's just not something you can dissect. Yeah, well said. I also think that one thing that's interesting is post-2016, having a, con, a common perce- a perception of a common enemy has been helpful for making um, some white progressives more aware uh, than they were before under President Obama of just how dire draconian and unjust immigration law has been. Um, and so that that has heightened the interest in it. But I mean, I do think this is a bipartisan problem and I'm struck by your answers too. It's not, it is true that, you know, under President Obama, more immigrants were deported in because that's in, that's policy. If you enforce U.S. immigration law, it means family separation. So what changed under Trump is, is the symbolic weapon is weaponizing of kids' pain. That's new, but not family separation. That's not. So I think that the kind of ways in which the optic of the current administration has definitely made coalitions more possible, but that I, I wouldn't want to start my narrative there because your story is about the hard work and the, the patience of building relationships that are actually not about an election, but about other types of collaboration, mutual aid, um, cohabitation, <laughs> Common, common questions at the local level. And that really is where collaboration emerges powerfully, I think. Um, we have, um, I encourage people to ask questions and to submit them to the chat. If I have one more question until some come, which would be about the contemporary elections. And I think at the risk of undercutting what I just said, <laughs> I do think not only do elections matter, but particular races matter. And I wonder, um, there's one race in particular that I think could be very powerful and important for this type of uh, coalition building between, say, immigrants and, and communities of color that are fighting uh, common abuses in policing. But um, another shift is in labor. And I think the commissioner of labor race uh, is a fascinating one, precisely because COVID makes essential workers on the front line of this epidemic and fighting it where the disparities are clearest and really without um, where there's in some ways the greatest needs and greatest convergence between uh, all kinds of people who need protection um, and where we need a real, we need a real labor law and immigration law are really, really twined here. So I'm curious if, if you all, if there are particular races that you are paying attention to at the statewide level, beyond, since we don't have any sheriffs on the ballot right now, that you might reflect on. Stephanie, please go right ahead if you'd like to. Well, I mean, as far as the ACLU um, goes, we're, we're always looking at what county commissioners are doing. Um, so right now we're trying to really ensure that people in Mecklenburg County and Wake County look at um, what their county commissioners are doing, especially around policing. Um, and so we actually on our website have a scorecard that we sent out to county commissioners from both um, both counties and their answers to those requests. I think especially Mecklenburg County with some of the, the candidates, um, it was very telling um, to see where their stances were. 
um, you know, as ACLU, we, we really encourage folks to take um, a look at their values and, and the greater good that is needed for our community. Um, so another race is another race that we're also paying a lot of attention to is um, our senators race. So uh, Tom Tillis and, and Cal Cunningham, you know, um, Tom Tillis is responsible for a lot of things um, that have happened in the state for a very long time. One of those being what's happening right now and, um, uh, you know, not being very interested in expanding the um, eviction moratorium um, in the middle of a very, very serious pandemic and where a large chunk of our population is, is out of work or has been hit um, financially significantly. Yeah, thanks. Spencer, did you want to? Thank you. Uh, did you have a comment? Certainly. So um, there's so I mean there's just so many races in North Carolina to talk about. And El Pueblo, like is specifically, uh, we're, we're very focused on the General Assembly, um, just because there are um, so many races that are so close, and especially in the House, uh, uh, there are a number of seats that are gonna be decided by a few thousand votes or less. Um, I would just specifically name um, House 63, Ricky Hurtado, Alamance County. I mean, that was an election that lost, that was lost um, in the last election by less than 400 votes. Um, in general, Democrats have to pick up less, uh, fewer seats than they do, than they did in 2018, have to flip fewer seats than they, now than they did two years ago. Um, uh, to be able to have a majority in the House. Um, another, um, you mentioned the, the Commissioner of Labor. Um, this is an office that is so much more than um, a picture in an elevator. It, it, it's something that affects working communities, uh, workers in North Carolina, um, and the inaction by that office disproportionately affects those families and workers. It's something we've seen and for the for years in North Carolina, um, so we are certainly um, paying attention to that race. I, I think just in general, um, we're also um, we're thinking a lot about the gubernatorial race. We are um, Fortaleza uh, so on the C four side. We're not um, endorsing a candidate in that race, but we're very strongly opposing Dan Forrest and just letting folks know that. Uh, you know, Dan Forrest is a candidate for for a governor who um, ha has ties with, for example, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. It, it steals a lot of kind of content and ideas about immigrant communities and about policing from from other kind of states. Um, so I think from the top down, there are opportunities to point out uh, the priorities um, that are at stake, the kind of things that are at stake for immigrant communities you know, for immigrants specifically in North Carolina uh, over the coming years. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other. Oh, and the last one, how could I forget North Carolina Senate 9 in New Hanover County? Um, certainly probably the most uh, the most flippable seat for Republicans this year. And, uh, you know, New Hanover County is one of those like four, four or five uh, Trump Cooper counties in North Carolina. So it paying a lot of attention to um, that Senate race specifically. Um, and a couple of other ones. I mean, it's, it's going to be a big year for either way. It's going to be a huge year with, with uh, um, lasting implications. Yeah, there's so many things at stake. I think one of the challenges is to figure out, you know, wh where to put your energy and, and, and your leverage. So one of the questions that came up in the chat was about um, 
building off of what you indicated, Stephania, about in Mecklenburg County, do we have a similar scorecard for uh, Durham County's races at the, um, and I think, and, and, and the question be, if we don't, why not? Because that's actually, this is about ha using that leverage knowledge to make in a close race, just a little bit of difference can make a huge impact. So yeah, um, do you think that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we decided only to have um, scorecards in those two counties based on we, where we have organizers doing the work. Um, and so Durham, uh, Durham County is not a location where we have an organizer um, there. However, there is movement. There is, you know, um, a lot of um, organizing that's going on organically. Um, I think often people see um, like larger institutions with household names as as institutions that are, are like the the ones that are pushing um, around, but often it's people on the ground um, that are doing the work. And what we end up doing at times is just um, supporting that work, using our brand recognition to um, you know create a wider audience, um, share it with our membership. Um, and so, yeah, unfortunately, Durham is not that one, but we are looking at Wake County commissioner races in the Wake County school board race um, because we are looking at the SRO, um, um, this SRO component in the school to prison pipeline, um, which is, you know, something of, of a lot of interest to us. Yeah. Um, another question, Spencer, do you, well, let me ask this question. This is builds right on your comment earlier, Spencer from uh, uh, Miriam Canna. Um, labor is a historic underdog in North Carolina. <laughs> Indeed. Which has one of the lowest levels of unionization and one of the country's oldest right to work laws. So have our speakers seen instances of solidarity between their movements and the labor movement in this state? And I think a broader question does, might be given the hard terrain of labor reform, is that a good political strategy for immigration rights to connect to, even if they're intrinsically located uh, in policy terms? I'm curious what you would say about that. And, and Spencer, why don't you start? Yeah, thanks a lot. And Stephanie, um, I, I definitely would want, want you to tap in here because I know you have a lot of experience uh, about like labor organizing in general. Um, you're right. I mean, labor has been... Um, uh, has been under the thumb of, of uh, kind of larger interest, like money interest in, in, in North Carolina history for, you know, dating back, again, uh, beyond fusionism. Um, so in terms of um, just looking like close, like we want to like use a specific example, like as we're driving east on 40, heading out to Wilmington, um, we pass through counties in which, um, you know, there are significantly more uh, pigs and there are humans, um, and a lot of, uh, also, um, poultry and chicken processing plants, right? So these, uh, are places in which we see a lot of labor workplace violations in which we see a lot of like really dangerous work being done a lot of times by immigrants. Um, so to answer your question directly around like the organizing framework for, for labor, there's definitely a lot of, um, partners like labor groups and partners who are involved with, um, grassroots organizing and that and have been part of coalitions with Latinx orgs and with, with immigrant rights orgs. Um, but you're right in that it is a, a significant challenge to kind of organize specifically around um, 
kind of like the framework of labor in the state just because it has been so ransacked uh, for so long. Um, but I think that's something that's changing. And I think that people are realizing, like just to bring it back to the commissioner race, um, that it is so much more, it, there's so much to it. Um, and that it really does matter who we have in that, in that seat. I guess the last kind of piece of context I, I could provide is that um, on one side of that race, the Democratic candidate Jessica Holmes is someone who uh, has been active in kind of community spaces uh, and Black-led organizing in Wake County and across the state before. And she also was unopposed in the primary uh, for that seat, um, which is really impressive. That's not something that we saw with the lieutenant governor's race, for example, another council of state race. And I think suggests that people are really serious on, you know, one side, um, not to say that, you know, the other candidate has, there's a lot there too, <laughs> if you look him up, but um, it, really serious about this office and really kind of serious about this um, position. So I think that from organizing all the way up to like the political infrastructure, there, there is definitely more energy there. And Stephanie, please, please add on. I'm sure I've missed like some, a lot of great detail. Thanks. Yeah, Stephanie. Yeah, definitely. Well, one thing I just want to go really quickly back to the Durham question. Our comms person just texted me that we do, in fact, have a federal, um, do have a scorecard for Durham. So if you go to our website, you will find it. I was incorrect. I apologize. Um, I think just for county commissioners, we're not really focusing on that. I love your emoji. Um, and then just as far as um, labor organizing and in immigrant rights organizing, I do strongly believe they go hand in hand, right? If we kind of take a step back, right? Um, well, a couple of things. One, if we look at especially what happened, I think it was in Johnson County. I might be wrong. I'm not very familiar with Raleigh-Durham area. Um, but when we looked at the t February 2019 um, workplace raid, it was a raid that um, that was done at a um, at um, a facility that manufactured guns. And then, if we look at the way that those raids really happen, is that is usually initiates with a Department of Labor um, investigation. And when usually when DOL comes in, that's when the other agencies are invited. And that's usually how the Department of Homeland Security comes in and invites ICE to do more investigating. So there's definitely, in terms of where the opposition is, there's very significant collaboration, right? And as far as where local organizing goes, um, you know, I think, it's extremely common for immigrants of, of any background to experience some sort of um, wage theft, uh, work discrimination, you name it. Um, and especially here in Charlotte, one of the things that I'm collaborating with, with my other hat, with my Comunidad Colectiva hat, is really focusing on that, um, that, that intersectionality. You know, we have a large jornalero workforce here. Jornalero is, is a day labor. So we have day labor sites across Charlotte. Um, and where folks are become victims of wage theft or um, discrimination or beatings, you name it. And then working with our local unions um, to create a hub for not only folks that, you know, are unionized, but also for workers that are not part or are in some type of informal um, working environment that does not allow them to unionize. And so we have the Charlotte Workers Assembly um, that has been trying to come up <laughs> in the past uh, year or so to truly try to show that everything's interconnected, right? Your um, labor rights, your housing rights, 
your immigrant rights. It's all connected. Um, and there is a need to really focus on that. And I think, you know, I'm really glad you brought up and, and Spencer, all the things that you've said about Cherry, Cherry Berry and the years that she's been in power and the lack of interest into really protecting North Carolina workers as a whole. I'm really, uh, great comments. I think one, th I just real quick thought is that I think with where the coalitions have been successful on the electoral side, they're partly because there are willing and obvious partners, whether it's a uh, movement for criminal justice reform and a way of, you know, attacking maybe the detention system that is also a for-profit industry. And conversely here, I mean, you know, there are ways in which 287G is also labor law. And if you think about the Smithfield story, where the United Food and Commercial Workers finally succeeded, they succeeded ironically because the sheriff, in part, uh, overreached in deporting people with 287G, and that so galvanized the remaining workers. He also got rid of his labor surplus that they, uh, that was part of the story that led them to unionize. So I, I do think that there is a kind of moral universality in labor and in opposition to police violence that um, is really powerful, that helps build that coalition. That doesn't exist without people organizing, but there needs to be that, that common, a commonality. Um, we are almost out of time. Do you have a brief 30 second comment where you'd maybe share about what we should take away um, regarding the role of elections? Because I think it's a big topic, but like you know, one, one quick thing we should think about in this election and also just moving forward. And um, Stephanie, why don't you start? Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one, I think elections are extremely important across the board, period. Um, I do really encourage people to pay attention, come to our website, look at our scorecards and ask more questions. You know, I think as somebody who lives in a blue county in a blue city, we are often, you know, blue is good. That's the, the mindset that community has. And I think questioning why we think that's the case and then what are the actions that these actors are actually partaking in, I think it's really important. And I think second of all, um, I think it's really important that people understand that civic duty is not just November 3rd <laughs> or primary. I think civic duty is making sure that you're up to date with or it's somewhat aware of what your counties do. And a perfect example that I can give right now is in the heartland of Latinolandia in Charlotte. We are now have a one lane road where there used to be two and now we're seeing more police interactions. And so, you know, something that may seem ridiculous because now I have to spend more time on the road is actually having serious implications to black and brown people living in that community. Um, and so I just think that's just really important um, for folks to, to, to take, take with them. It's just how can we be present, not only for ourselves, but for our community as a whole and getting rid of that individualistic mindset. Um, and yeah, and just follow us on social media. At awesome. North Carolina. Thanks. Um, and I just maybe a real quick comment, Spencer, because we're actually out of time, but go for it. Very briefly, um, I would just say that um, this is the time to make sure you're registered to vote. Um, so you can do that with the North Carolina voter lookup tool that I just dropped in the chat. And then I would also encourage you to visit um, the kind of most comprehensive 
uh, bilingual voting resource for all North Carolina voters this year, votemosmc.com. You can read that in English and Spanish. There's candidate information. There's um, like ways that you can, you know, all the different ways you can vote this year. Um, and, and, and you're right, you know, this election is going to end and the very uh, next year we will have elections for sheriffs um, across North Carolina. So uh, I would encourage you to keep your eye on on all, everything that's happening uh, the day after November, th well, after this election, a whole new kind of cycle starts for us and um, we're going to be there too. Spencer, thank you so much. Stephanie, thank you so much. And just real quickly, thank all of the audience members. The next event in this wonderful series is Immigration in the 2020 Election. We'll continue up. That's on October 20th at 1230. Um, and Greg Chen is the speaker and moderated by Kate Evans. And I would encourage you to be in touch with these two wonderful people if you have any interests in this important pressing topic. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe to Duke Law Podcasts on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit Duke Law on the web at law.duke.edu.